It's Oscar season, baby. What do you think? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know what? I'll say this to start. It's better than last year. It's a huge improvement over last year. I won't. I won't say it's great yet, but it's it's also kind of hard because there was just a lot of really great movies this year, and the choices like yeah. like for the most part, the choices here are really good. And there's a couple of snubs that are aggravating, but overall, like. Uh, the outcome here is it's much more ideal than like last year, like we said, where there was like it was just a total shit show, both in the nominations and the ultimate winners. I think I'm when we're looking down this, we have eleven nominations for Joker, which is the big news. Um, yeah. But the more important thing to me is that we got six for Parasite, which is absolutely unprecedented. Yes, that's a fantastic for a non-American uh, release uh, and. I mean, the, the Joker thing is definitely weird. I think someone, I saw someone compare that to, like, the amount of nominations that Ben-Hur got, which is <laughs> okay. very silly to consider. <laughs> but I, I think that's the disparity uh. there we're looking at, is that you got Parasite on one end of the spectrum and Joker on the other. And that's a, a pretty good summation of our, you know, film industry at this moment. I think that's pretty effective summation of what's going on in film. I mean, like, on one end, you have joker kind of representing i don't know like the top end of the cape movies right like a it's a higher end art piece at least in the acting um i i'm surprised you haven't got to it honestly of all the cape movies this I'm year i'm so done it has so many nods it has so many nods to like the classic silent films uh, does it the cl- like classic silent films yeah which, which silent films like i know you've got your like your uh last laugh or whatever um you know for yeah. or th- i think that's what it's called or they all laughed uh for you know like the, the inspiration for the joker character in general like that's a a big mm-hmm. thing like the design of him from the comics and everything but otherwise i don't know what i mean we talk about the joker as being very derivative of martin scorsese films yeah i mean i think we see that it has um a lot of taxi driver in it and uh I'd say it goes to, like, Buster Keaton, kind of, at least improvisation. I think Joaquin Phoenix is doing another thing than the movie is. Uh, I, It's such a great performance. I think that's almost a given at this point. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about the actor nominees overall? Uh, the actor nominees has probably been the hardest one to contest out of any of these. Like, I've seen lots of discussion uh, around it. But it's it's because there's all, you know, so many great ones. The people who are left out, like, who do you drop, you know, in order to get that there? Because I guess, like, eh. Well, you got Jonathan Price here, and I don't know how he was in The Two Popes. I haven't heard as much talk. Excellent. Is he good? Um, I think uh, it's been coming in under the shadows, I think. Uh, Two Popes was a lot better than any reception it received. Has Jonathan Price been nominated for an Oscar before? He's like a, a kind of a, I don't believe a so. character actor you see pop in things occasionally. Like we talked about him in Glengarry, Glen Ross, and of course he's known for Brazil, but he's not like a huge leading actor typically, so it's interesting to see him nominated here. Yeah, I don't believe now, so. This is, um, this is it. This is the first time. I would have so put in... Cool. I would have put in Defoe, of course. Well, but, uh, Defoe, I think, would have probably qualified more for supporting actor, and that's probably what they should have pushed for. It's more like, I think the biggest shutout for leading actor is uh, Adam Sandler for Uncut Gems. That's what everyone's, you know, going off about. Yeah, there's also the representation problem, which is real, but uh, I, I mean, if one out of 20 is a uh, person of color i think that's problematic when we have like lupita nyong'o but uh, yeah so that uh, for for the 
her leading character there, especially because they've got uh, Cynthia Erivo for uh, Harriet in the actress category instead. And <laughs> I don't know anyone who liked anything about Harriet or who even <laughs> saw it. I know Tyler saw it, and he There's... was like, no. <laughs> He was he he wouldn't even review right. it for us, and I mean, th- yeah, I think that tells you enough because uh, um, I'm looking at Judy and Harriet in particular as movies that were only popular in the trades. Like uh, last year, I think it was what was it called, The Wife? Uh, that right. was only projected in like trade and industry publications. Uh, I think that's what so the, Renee the Zellweger is for this time. Harriet is the yeah. wife of this year. I think so. Um, and I think the shame of it is that we only nominated a black person for a slavery role, which is a, you know, hurtful past to make so entertaining and make light of in that movie. Uh, I saw the same thing I, as well. There were so many better. <laughs> I saw the same thing as well in comparison with Lupita Nyong'o getting snubbed this year, is that the Academy was more than happy yeah. to nominate her in the role of a slave, but not uh, for oh. something like this, which is n- not so great looking. Which is... <laughs> I know, because this is much... Uh, more individual performance and she does a dual role that is at least i mean us i think there's a lot of problems yes. with it but that part's <laughs> undeniable right we talked at length about the issues of us and, and went back and forth on it and uh you know but but for all things said and i i certainly was the dissenter on that film but lupine yongo was brilliant in it and certainly one of the best female performances of the year so to not see her here is a little disappointing uh, i think people just forgot about it all... yeah yeah, I think so. Uh, it happened so early in the year, and it made a lot of critic circle picks, but uh, as far as industry and trade, uh, only really November matters. Right. Um, Once it comes around to voting season time, you're like, oh, yeah, and then like probably the performances faded from half of their memories. So that <laughs> yeah, I, I'm right. going to go with that's the explanation for why she's not here this year. <laughs> that feels fair. Uh, Apollo 11 not being in documentary is kind of hurtful. Yeah, I know. That's That was your big... Uh, celebration you said this is better than like any other space movie to come out in the last 10 years right uh this year at least but Mm -hmm. yeah um i think apollo 11 is such a special documentary it has such a great soundtrack that i also would have put in here um it's one of there's a few other problems here i think yeah what are the problems we're looking at uh, I'm just thinking about things like costume design. Putting like Joker over Rocket Man or something is absurd to me. Um, I get why. I, I mean, everyone talked about the the yeah. costume design of Joker and the bright color palette and how everything stands out. So I don't think it's wrong to be in here, but definitely the omission of Rocket Man in several categories <laughs> is a little frustrating for you and me both. Well, how about um, <laughs> how about Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker for original score? I mean, they're they're gonna give that to him. That's a gimme for John Williams. This is the last Star Wars score because he's done with the series. Yeah. Is that why? Is that the only reason? Well, they'll nominate him for. I, I'm just thinking Daniel. Yep. I'm just thinking Daniel Lopatin for Uncut Gems and uh, Mika Levy for uh, Monos because she was also shorted on Under the Skin and. Mm-hmm just keeps happening they don't really care about the scores i think my theory with with Uh, uncut gems because uncut gems is kind of just shut out completely here and everyone's upset about it is that nobody had time to see it for the academy or they didn't make it a priority at least like they would something with little women which came out you know the same day on christmas uh you know and because they care about sushi because or not sushi um greta gerwig because she's you know a, a member of the the hollywood elite there is it hard when you release a movie that's really hard to get to with the family during the holidays, you think? 
Yeah, I think that's another big thing. Again, I think what we're not considering is that the Academy is not you and me here who have all the time in the world to go sit and watch every movie. Uh, you know, they're probably closer to people like me who can but won't and don't. <laughs> they just wait for their screeners to show up yeah. and they put off the screeners while they watch a bunch of other old films that they love already and then they just kind of pick whatever without really paying attention. Yeah, I mean, from what I know... I mean, just knowing someone that's in the Academy, they told me they don't watch the screeners, so I, I can believe that extends to a lot of people within the organization. I, I really doubt everyone's watching no, most things. Uh, they're certainly not watching everything by any stretch of the imagination, and you know, ju we're just, I guess, lucky enough for them to watch some of the things, some of the notable ones that we've touched on throughout the year. I mean, it's pretty clear that it's led by campaigns and whatnot. And Uncut Gems had a very quiet campaign. Did they have a campaign? A24 in general does not push for awards. The same reason why Lighthouse only has one nomination, I'd say. That was the only thing, I guess, that was that was worth really pushing for was that daring cinematography choices that they went for in it. And hopefully it gets recognized for that. But going up against uh, Deacons again, I don't know. Do you think they'll give Deacons another Oscar right after they gave 2049? I think I think it's very probable that they will, uh, but I think A twenty four is just run out of money. They seem like they've had a really down year promotion wise, uh, despite having some really good entries. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't mind if they don't promote as much because it's all you know, it's all a game anyway. Yeah, and they're just so much more committed to putting out great films, you know, which is uh, important. You know, we trust them more than the big wig Hollywood studios right now. There's a whole cult around A twenty four for God's sake. Yeah, I think this year we saw a lot of shift toward, like, Neon, which did really great here. Um, props to Neon just getting Parasite recognized, but yeah. also getting Honeyland into documentaries, or uh, Honeyland into documentary and into foreign language films is pretty significant. Both of them, I think, that's a very significant. And Honeyland was uh, one of your main films on your documentary uh, watch list that you got here. Yeah, yeah, check that piece out. I highlighted a lot of cool documentaries this year, from like Hail Satan to uh, Honeyland. Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, I think, really great to highlight those pieces, and because they are often overlooked, people rarely would, people rarely go out to see movies to begin with, let alone documentary. Yeah, I think, I think documentaries people wait for Netflix for sure. It's something they're going to watch when you know the kids just go to sleep. They have like an hour left in the day and want to be transported somewhere else or learn something yeah and they're they're highly valuable and very uh overlooked uh, artistic you know aspect of film and i think it's uh, we should put more importance on them for sure and it's a booming genre too most of the new movies being made are documentaries right now so it's only on the rise and it makes a lot of sense to pay a little bit more attention to them at the end of the year i think mm-hmm so what do you think here of the uh, best picture category? Uh, wow. Uh, what's your pick right now? Uh, it's it's really hard to say because what I kind of valued is I kind of take a step back and I look at what is it going to mean for the uh, you know the next year of American film here is basically what the, the best picture decides and how is the industry going to lean. And as I said earlier here, we kind of got two polls. We got the, the poll with Joker, more blockbustery stuff like that. And then we've got the the radical, you know, uh, direction with Parasite, which we could really upheave 
the way American films are made and how we go. I, I doubt necessarily that if Parasite won, that we would see an influx of, you know, foreign films coming in and people going out to the theater and seeing them, even though it was rather unprecedented, the success of Parasite. But hopefully, I mean, that's still the ideal scenario. Even Even though I know on the podcast here for our top 10 of the last year i was a little bit more down on parasite i would love to see it win though i think realistically hollywood uh, is going to give tarantino his just desserts you know finally or, or whatever and, and give him the best picture oscar for once upon a time in hollywood i think that's the most likely scenario that or irishman yeah um i'm curious to see if irishman blanks again i mean with like 10 more nominations i really doubt it's going blank all over but no de niro was a little bit surprising. Yeah, uh, I think again the, the actor category was just a really hard one because there were so many deserving ones it seemed, and so many people you know not entirely happy with it. But who would you lose? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not totally sure what you could do to change it without causing some problem within the selection here. Uh, I guess I'd go with Parasite. First, of course, since we don't have Lighthouse, uh, I just want to see what that does. Like you say, though, it could change things, but uh, even before we get here, we already have Parasite being adapted for an HBO show, right? For American audiences. Uh, interesting news on that, that uh, Bong Joon-ho wanted it to be an expansion of that universe, which sounds really cool to me. I don't know uh, too much about it. Uh, I know... Bong is behind it, but because it is being yeah. do you know if it's being like Americanized? Are they bringing white people to play the parts, or is it is it still like a continuation of it? I'm confused as to the like because to me it seems like mm. just a, an odd choice. The story seemed very complete. I don't, yeah, I don't think there's a sense for that yet, except that he wishes that they'd either be Korean or Mexican. Uh, once he gets to the story, so I guess me- I don't Mexican think anything's would be, really been written yet. Mexican but. would be interesting for a commentary yeah. for America, uh, in particular. I think that that would be a an interesting adaptational choice. But I don't know. In, in general, I think I'd rather just see Bong do something else, uh, and preferably probably not another American project because you know he did that kind of already between Snowpiercer and Okja, and this you know and Parasite was finally a return to his Korean, you know, cinema and his home roots like that. I feel like Ford versus Ferrari is the, probably the most unlikely thing here. Uh, that and Jojo Rabbit yeah. seem like impossibilities to me. I don't know really what either of them are doing here. Like, I don't like the fact yeah, that, I, I don't, don't like know. the fact that Joker is in, in here for many reasons, but I, I understand why it is. And it obviously was very popular, right. but Ford versus Ferrari, uh, had like, no discussion it was came out and it disappeared even though it was greatly anticipated by even my my co-host here on the podcast it did very well at the box office it just Uh, there are a lot of people that went to ford vs ferrari i mean it's very seen yeah it just didn't have any discussion Um, but i bet like the academy saw a lot of it uh just from my understanding it's very kind of by the numbers and, and plain. And it's not nominated really like anywhere else. So how did it end up for <laughs> yeah, this <I> picture? <laughs> That's always weird for me when it's like a one category because we're not getting, you know, got like, Damon or Bale in the other categories. It got like technical technical awards. And as far as I know, there's very yeah. few. Like you got to go back like some 70 years or so to find anything that's just nominated for best picture, like in the very first five years of the Academy or so. I think that 1917 will be the 
upset here. If I could look for like a green book type it's story, like the dark horse, where people are like, how did that win? Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's something that the Academy is going to uh, probably cherish, and it's already won a Golden Globe. I think it has momentum right now. Right. It it very well could, and I think it it has an edge over something like Irishman or Marriage Story by appealing to Spielberg more because it's not a Netflix film. <laughs> which which I think what I I haven't heard any discussion of, but what if Marriage Story won? That would be. That would be interesting. I think everyone would be kind of surprised, like, not necessarily that it wouldn't deserve it, but, like, just nobody is expecting that at all. Yeah. I, in that way, I guess it's like Green Book, because it, it could, I could see Marriage Story being on every list in, like, third or fourth place somewhere. Right. Very few would claim Out it to be the selection. best of the year by, by any means, I think. I mean, with these preferential ballots, if we had, like, votes split between, like, say, Irishman and then Joker and Parasite in 1917, but then Marriage Story was, like, in third on every one of those lists, it still wins the Oscar, so. Right. No, that, that could be the thing as well, is that what what are the films that are going to be the to split the vote effectively here? Because that's, yeah. that's often what it comes down to in these uh, voting situations most of the time, is that, you know two really big films go at it or two actors or whoever and they split most of the vote and so the third you know candidate there kind of ends up winning um there weren't too many other surprises i think i think overall it's a better list and that they are showing that they want to improve i think the parasite showing shows a lot here yes so. parasite especially it's, nice. it's a great and a good step in the right direction uh but Again, its success was somewhat unprecedented in the U.S. here. So who knows if that'll be the case again next year. And, you know, of course, we already had the established presence of uh, Bong Joon-ho as a you know popular Korean filmmaker over here in the States. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to get anything like that in the next couple years or so, someone else to, to come forth and put something that will really wow American audiences in the way The Parasite did. Uh, this year is looking... A little light, but of course we don't know that really until can. So uh, we could settle down and see what happens. But uh, I think everything's in development now. All the most exciting things of the next year are still in post production. So we're gonna find out about them soon. Yeah. Well, do you have anything to report on since the year started here? I know we've got a couple of movies and shows and things that have kind of uh, yeah. come into our stratosphere here. Uh, movies are dead. Twenty twenty <laughs> is the year of TV. I've been watching Netflix's The Circle. Yeah, uh, I've heard uh, interesting things, I think, about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been talking about it almost every day with Kevin now. It's become our show of discussion as we put together... We're putting together the 2020 list with Tyler for the site, so uh, that'll be up in like a week or two. But, uh, man, I... <laughs> I'm hooked on the circle. I came in while my wife was watching it about 30 minutes in, and I, I've already finished most of the series before her. It's such a guilty pleasure. Oh, that's good that it's uh, coming out. I can't help, but for some reason, you have to describe the show a little bit to me because I'm just, okay. I'm, I'm only picturing the Tom Hanks movie from a couple years back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the circle with Tom Hanks. Uh, this is about... Uh, people who live within the same hotel building, but they never see each other. And so uh, several of the contestants are catfish, and um, they disguise themselves through their texts to the other people. And it's about blocking people from the social circle. Uh, two leaders are elected every episode, and they block someone out, and then a new person comes in, maybe a catfish or a real person. And they're all fighting for $100,000, right? So 
there's a lot on the line, and you get to see who people really are. But I just want to congratulate Netflix on their excellent casting here. That's that, that does sound interesting, but I'll admit you kind of let me down there because for a second I thought you meant there are real catfish in the hotel, and that seems way more interesting. <laughs> it would be more interesting, but this show is it'll be weird because it's probably going to end up on like my top of twenty twenty, and we're like ten. What, 13 days in? You, you say this all the time. I'm waiting for another High Life where you just claim it as the best right out the gate and then it just drops and drops and drops throughout the year and nobody comes around to support your you, your claims, your ridiculous claims early on. <laughs> you say that, but it stayed in my top ten the entire year. Yeah, it just... I, you, I don't know what to tell you, you about You didn't get support from anyone else. Like, literally everyone else shut you out on, on High Life there, so... <laughs> Except for our friend, um, yeah, our, our our friend Midnight on there. Our friends outside of the the site here, and they they don't matter for our judgments for our site lists and such. Uh, <laughs> so the people who like High Life don't matter to your outcomes here. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Sorry, people who liked High Life, your opinion is irrelevant. <laughs> I I think that's why I got behind it, but the circle I think a lot of people like. So, mm-hmm. Uh. I mean, it's obviously a reality TV show. I don't think it's actually going to end up on any list. Well, but, uh, yeah, has a reality TV show ever cracked any top list? Do you even categorize that the same as, like, narrative shows? Well, the, here's the thing. We have this guy, Joey, and he seems like he's from, like, South Philadelphia or Jersey, and then he ends up being an L.A. guy, and he seems like just a Jersey Shore contestant, like the biggest douchebag in the world for the beginning. And then it slowly revealed that he's like the most earnest, loving guy. So uh, Kevin and I are obsessed with the tracking the goings on of Joey and um, and his friend Shubham, who's like an Indian virtual reality designer who's really playing a meta game inside the minds of the other contestants. Uh, it's a fascinating show, so everyone must watch The Circle. All right, well, that's an, a great endorsement from Calvin on Netflix's uh, latest reality TV show. <laughs> Our usual coverage range. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we have on Disney Plus um, the Mandalorian. Uh, have you given any thought to watching this? Uh, you know, people keep saying things that interest me. They say, "Oh, it's like a, a western or like a, a Ronin show." Yeah, and I'm like, "Ooh, that does sound interesting." But I'm absolutely ambivalent to Star Wars right now. Please don't get me excited. Please don't make me interested. I don't want to care anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to skip the new Star Wars movie, but I think. It's- Star Wars Mandalorian, especially the last couple episodes, really sold yeah, me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was, I was gonna say your review. I was kind of in the middle on it. Yeah, your review, uh, you know, paints it in, in basically a couple different ways. Like, starts off pretty good, it's a little rocky in the middle, but then it really picked up for you in that last episode. It sounded like. I I really hope that expressed like the difference between the feelings of the episode. It was so hard to review because. The show is scattered into at least three parts, which is a promising but dull beginning and then a sagging middle. And then just a phenomenal last two episodes. I, I forget the second to last director, but then we had Taika Waititi in the last one. And he really gets to make kind of a Star Wars movie. There's a sequence where the Mandalorian is like clinging on to, um, to a TIE fighter with a grappling yes. hook. And it's pulling him across the sky until he could... Latch on and set a bomb onto I've it. I've seen some clips it's from that scene. one of my favorite scene. Star Wars scenes. That's, you saw a clip of that? Yeah, I've seen that? some clips from that scene, and that looked really cool and exciting, and uh, like felt like Star Wars. That's what it kind of looked like, which the movies yeah. have not felt like to me uh, in general. 
Even the one I le- really like, of course, I like uh, The Last Jedi. It doesn't feel very Star Wars-y. I mean, the good parts of it, it has well, the same... It's very modern. It The same... That's, yeah. that's the big thing. There's, like, the same big action sequences as Star Trek, right? Well, it's, it's just it's very different in its approach to things, and it shakes things up. And that's what's interesting about The Last Jedi, but it's it's not like your traditional one in, in uh, the classic sense, you know? Gotta subvert everything, don't yeah. you? Um, the Mandalorian, though, it is very westerny. It has, like, the musical stings of a man with no name. Uh, I I called mine the Mandalorian with no name, of course, because I like an easy joke. Um, It it has uh, John Wayne's grandson doing a lot of the stunts for Pedro Pascal. Of course, he's masked most of the show, so we don't know who's playing him at any given point. Right. I mean, at that point, why not just have John Wayne's son just always be him? And then I I guess, are there scenes where he has to take the helmet off? There is one. Uh, So there is a point where... Where we want Pascal. Right, well, in that, in that case, And yeah. Pascal always does the voice. Right. So. Well, that's an easy job. You just go into uh, the booth, record your lines in an afternoon, and collect your paycheck. <laughs> the easiest job in the world. Really, yeah. Um, the Mandalorian, though, I really liked the last two episodes. It, it finally got to the Western feeling that I was really looking for, and it, it felt cohesive, finally. Uh, they actually gave us more than Baby Yoda. <laughs> I mean, for a long time, I thought Baby Yoda was the thing, but... Really, this is a good show. Oh, that's good, and I'm sure you're excited for season two then, whenever they get around to that. Yeah, yeah, season two is coming next year, which is going to be fine, I think. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> uh, some of them, some of the episodes just seem like John Favreau pulling favors to friends, but uh, once we get to these last two episodes that are block shots, so they're shot together, right? Uh, and it feels like a continuous whole Star Wars movie. That's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um we also had Dracula. That uh, was that on Netflix. Yeah, or? that's why I was. Well, it's a. I was trying to get you to transition okay. to that from the other Netflix, but I think you forgot it was a Netflix thing. So. Yeah, I was I was reeling through my head because I'm thinking like BBC production from the Sherlock guys. Netflix isn't connecting here, but yeah, that's the Netflix show you were referencing. It's, uh, it's both, yeah. And it's a really, yeah, it's a fun update of like a Hammer kind of Dracula movie where they take. They take the basics of what Dracula is, and then they spin off from there and find a lot of new value in hammy jokes. Uh, he has, like, a Legosa-like delivery. It's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, uh, they they make a lot of different uh, decisions, especially with Mina. Um, Mina and then Van Helsing being a nun is kind of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it's a, a pretty sincere departure but also sticks you know very well to the spirit of the material and it's nice i think dracula is one of those timeless stories that's just fascinating to see the many many different iterations of in uh, so many different generations and so it's nice to have another one come by and then you have a uh, clay bang as the new dracula who has a really good look for it i think i don't know if you've seen the square um no not at all related to the circle <laughs> by the way <laughs> should we get the triangle next what's, what's that one <laughs> but that one's uh the square is about like the art uh the art curation thing where they're just putting on like a cock fights basically and uh this uh clay bang is really great in that and it's good to see him performing at a high level in something uh a denmark actor who's i don't know he he really has the voice and the look for dracula he's really nice in it all right well what what about um, movies i know we talked a lot about you know, TV and movies aren't really great in January here, but I'm sure you've seen something. Uh, well, I had seen Les Mis, which comes out this week. Uh, 
it's probably nothing like what I think people are anticipating Les Mis to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, our last big kind of example was the Hugh Jackman one, which was a more or less dumpster mm-hmm. fire of some kind of proportion. <laughs> yeah. That was the Tom Hooper one, which Hooper's made a few dumpster fire musicals at this point. Yeah, so. something recently um, can't recall. Uh, I don't know. It's probably not worth it. <laughs> I, I mean, this one's on you. <laughs> Well, yeah, what's up? Well, this is this so, was the it's, selection, the French version. This is an actual French Les Mis adaptation. Yeah, because the Oscars force you to choose one movie that's good from your country. Uh, this is the only French film that we received, uh, which is really difficult. Yeah, well, it was surprising um, in comparison to, like, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which got way more buzz and acclaim than this did. You're the only person I've heard talk about this. Really? Yeah. I don't know of anyone else who's ta- seen Les Mis or anything. I better say what it is then. Uh, so Les Mis generally, of course, takes place in late 19th century France, but uh, now it's shifted to the modern day, and it's not in any really dumb way where you think, oh, the musicals just go play out. Uh, of course, they only mention Victor Hugo a couple times, um, and it's really an interesting spin because they go with uh, cops in modern France, and you follow them into, like, I don't know if you'd call them, like, favelas in France, but these little kind of ghettoized towns, and they're um, living within provinces of criminals, and uh, it's it's interesting to see what, like, the anti-crime feeling is with race in France, because we see a lot of it here, and it's interesting to see another country finally doing something in that field. Yeah, it's always nice. I think uh, modern interpretations of classic stories uh, always has the potential for some interesting social commentary. It doesn't always go well, but, you know, I'll never say no to it necessarily unless it's really bonkers and dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really liked it. It's uh, directed by Lodge Lodge Lai, I think their name is, which is a good way for France to get diversity out there, showing that they have a great black director who's made a really fantastic memorable movie um i i've heard no other conversation about this either uh and it has such a great ending and of course that wraps up with a victor hugo quote and you're like okay i see what you're doing here and um it's uh basically i think the last line something like there are no you know bad plants or bad humans they're only bad cultivators so we're looking at social influence and we're looking a little bit deeper than you know, almost any of these films other than Parasite. Uh, so France and Korea are, are really our best representations of our own country, too. Yeah, and we're over here making Joker. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which has very little social value, I think. It had the opposite one of what I thought it would, at least, where it's dealing with a lot of liberal issues. And um, and the main premise of Joker, of course, is like comedy is dead because uh, Todd Phillips seems like a douchebag, but... It just—it feels like very surface level social commentary. Like, oh look, we're aware of some issues at hand here. It's like, yeah, but if that's all you have to say, (laughs) just get the fuck out. (laughs) Yeah, basically all it says is that we're aware of them, right? It doesn't have a commentary on them. It doesn't add new value. It's like people are mentally ill. Yeah, there's there's new light. It's like, yeah, we kind of know that. (laughs) Yeah, we're kind of living on the same streets as these people, and we see them every day. We we understand the issues. Uh, so, but you saw one other film this week, right? Oh, God. Underwater. That's the wow. Kristen Stewart movie, right? Yeah. 
I feel like future weeks will be easier for us. It's a little bit harder shifting back and filling time with the January releases because, um, well, all the good movies have come out already. Right. Well, to be honest, the thing is, as well, I, it, it, for people who don't know, kind of out there, how, how the studios basically do things is that the last half of the year is really jam packed with all of the great stuff you anticipate because that's when the the kind of Oscar and award season is, and you want to stuff all that in and get it in before the deadline. And usually January is for all those films they've procrastinated on putting out or they've shelved for a long time and they just don't know what to do with anymore, how to market it, so they just dump it in January and February, and so we just get <laughs> crap for like two months. Straight. We, we talked about this last year as well. Like, Us was the first film of note the whole year, and that was in goddamn March. It was a whole three yeah. months for us to get something, like, like big name, <laughs> big anticipated film. Everything else was just whatever. Well, I think Monster Trucks was one of the films last year or, or something like that. <laughs> I Maybe don't the year know before. That. It was dumb. Yeah. That's, that's what I, I think, think of when I, I think, think of January movies. I think Underwater is the perfect representation of what you just said, because... It's been sh- it's been sitting on a shelf at Fox for three years now. It mm-hmm. uh, finished shooting in 2017, and then of course we had that Disney buyout. So this was kind of last priority while they got those awards movies out. Um, they had to filter some things through Fox, and early this year now we receive a uh, what is it underwater in the new X Men movie? Who knows what right. that's called? Uh, is, you know, is that movie even existent? It, I guess it exists still. We'll see if it actually comes out. But it being underwater being on the shelf for three years makes a lot of sense now because I know T.J. Miller's a, a big name that's in there. But we've yeah, we've right. since canceled him for being a total <laughs> uh, douchebag and terrible person. So uh, okay. it was surprising to see him in a notable role like this. But that makes much more sense now. Okay, yeah. So 2017 T.J. Miller does make a little bit more sense. Um I didn't know that we canceled them yet. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It also makes sense for like Kristen Stewart, who's emerging from her Twilight period around 2016, 17, starting to become serious and dipping her toes in the water, so to speak. Uh, this whole thing takes place underwater, so it's dark and grim, as you expect, but it doesn't have any interesting or cool shots. Uh, some of the parts where it kind of obfuscates any vision is kind of the most interesting thing about it. Like a, uh, the best part of it is when you can't see the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the the stills, the promo stills and whatnot they released here, and there's a shot that looks like they stole it right out of Alien, and then yeah. underwater stuff reminds me a lot of The Abyss with its kind of sci-fi yeah. twist in here. So it looks very derivative. I think it takes a lot of hard work to make Alien and The Abyss really boring for me because they're so squarely in my interest and so much like in my sphere of what I want that uh, of course I'll go to the movie but uh, honestly the only good thing about Underwater is that it had jump scares that kept me awake yeah well that's not necessarily a good thing we don't really like jump scares because they're so cheap and vapid oh I just mean for <laughs> yeah, being for keeping able you to awake, keep me from were... nodding off because I think that's their only value here um, I think once you see too much of the creatures of course that ruins it which is always the horror movie thing Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's... Uh, there's... Oh, good. I I just wouldn't go see Underwater. I, I don't see very much value in it. Uh, it's not adding anything to the genre. Uh, it really abruptly ends, too. 
I, I was starting to kind of get a feel for where it was going, and I was like, okay, here's a mo- moment that's leading toward a climax. And then, like, one thing happens, and the movie ends, and it goes to, like, a, a biopic kind of um, shots of newspapers summarizing what happened in the end. Uh, uh, that was frustrating. All right, so a glowing review from Calvin. Go check out Underwater as soon as you can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... Well, then, why don't we talk about something a little more exciting? Our our pick of the week, our featured film. Uh, would you like to introduce it, Calvin? Uh, yeah. It may not be grads and, da- grads and dads season, but uh, we got the graduate. Yeah, so, not graduation time, but a, a little more relevant to discuss the graduate, because this last week, uh, screenwriter Buck Henry passed away is very sad and this is certainly his most notable and crowning achievement of a film but he did have an illustrious career as an american screenwriter uh kind of all over the place but the graduate is just this huge hallmark of american cinema in general and i think the 60s in particular and the fact that we hadn't talked about it yet might have been somewhat of a surprise i think we put it off largely because we have some representation of it on the site with the piece i wrote of it when we first launched uh a year and a half ago or so well, you wrote a great piece about the symbols of the graduate, and it's stock full of them. Yeah, this um, is, it was actually a piece I wrote before we met, when I was kind of just first starting yeah. out and trying to get some writing under my belt. And uh, you know, it was a film that always stuck with me, stuck out. And uh, you know, when I hungered down to really watch the film and look for the symbolism, it was exciting to discover even more than I hadn't recognized just from memory to really see how much it is embedded into the film. And uh, looking back, I'm still really proud of that piece, which is why I kept it on the site and I didn't bury it and burn it in a fire like I did with all the other stuff before it. Yeah. I I think you could see, like, Buck Henry's really clear um, writing. He writes such a well-disillusioned character. Yeah, the character work is just such a phenomenal aspect of it, and I think... He really captures is not just the characters themselves, but the, on a grander scale, a whole uh, dichotomy of generations, uh, kind of yeah. going at it with each other in a sense. Like the very early in the film, we get the sense that you know Benjamin's parents are pushing him to be a certain way, and they're they're trying to shape the new generation. In particular, in the '60s, yeah. this generational conflict is a very relevant uh, you know topic and because the, the younger generation is really pushing back and trying to make a voice for themselves and breaking barriers and doing things in radical different ways and that's really why I think this uh, the graduates this really great summation of 60s cinema and culture in general there are times in culture where it feels like we're on the cusp of another generation like I feel like the last one has been sort of muted in that there weren't a lot of parental roles that were supporting, you know, like kids to go do something. There wasn't a push. We've opened it up. So now we are back to like the sixties era. So I feel like in many ways it's relevant again. I feel like the 2019, 20 season is very similar to what's happening in the sixties that we need some uprising and that people are feeling some kind of revulsion towards the government and there's like an okay boomer culture, right? Right. Like there's a whole culture rising now around the youth that uh, we just started like the alpha generation with my daughter, right? So right. there's like a whole new generation on the cusp and ca- it's really exciting. And uh, it's weird to watch this now because I always watched it as a kid and I watched it maybe, you know, 20 times as a teenager. 
haven't approached it as an adult, and I feel close to the elders now. Right. That's the I think one of the most fascinating things about The Graduate for me, because like like any great film, but this one in particular, I think the way you age reshapes your perception of the film. And I've heard this across the board for other people who have watched it at many different points in their life, but particularly, especially if you start out seeing The Graduate at a young age, which you totally should, because it's very relatable mm. for a teenager, someone fresh out of high school, who's very lost and doesn't know what to do with their life, they're directionless, and they, they very much sympathize uh, with Ben's situation there, and they can relate to him in a very easy capacity. And you get to follow him the whole way through, and that's really the, the base story there of The Graduate. But What's really genius about the film is the way it also addresses and validates the woes of the older generation, and particularly how it sympathizes with Mrs. Robinson and her her middle-aged conflicts and feeling like she's squandered her youth, you know, the way that, that Ben is in many ways at this moment, he, the way he felt feels lost she also felt lost at one time and is regretting that and, and trying to reclaim her youth in some ways through this new generation. And I think as we grow older, we start to see her side and we sympathize with her to an even greater degree than we may have as children. Because certainly, I mean, you can still see that perspective as a, uh, a younger person. But it's a little different when you've experienced that regret, I think. And obviously, I, uh, I, I do my best to sympathize with it, but I'm the youngest person, you know, here by a, a mile. Yeah, right. I mean, I think they're just such well-drawn characters. And that's Tupac Henry's credit that I feel like anyone could find their compassion in any of the characters here um i think it's so interesting that uh i don't know just how everyone is well drawn and connected to each other how they develop into nervous conversations i think ben ends up having a lot of ticks and uh, nervous qualities especially uh some of the best scenes are so early in the movie like yeah. within 10 minutes we're in the house and they're confronting sexuality with each other and I, I, there's such adult themes too that aren't really present before this for me um, I mean there are a lot of sexualized movies and pre-code movies that are doing this but we have uh, older women who are kind of becoming the um, becoming the predator in a relationship well, I think that's a, another fascinating aspect of it is, is when the graduate comes in in the timeline of American cinema because we are right on the precipice there of the rating system and the total upheaval of the classic Hollywood studio structure. Uh, the Hayes Code was entirely abolished in 68, which is a year after this film. Right. So, and you can see by this point the progress that's been made, how much you get. You even get flashes of uh, nudity in the film at one point. Very, very mm -hmm. brief flashes when Mrs. Robinson first confronts Ben, which is this genius editing technique to kind of put us in his shoes and create this these nervous flashes of, of what he's seeing and this exposure. Uh, I love it because it, it feels like such an art film moment that's just like hidden in between this conversation. It is. The influence of the 60s and the filmmaking of that time is really embedded into The Graduate in, in brilliant ways. We talked about the, the similar in another 60s film and, uh, when we talked about Midnight Cowboy as well. And those, yeah. those more European... Uh, filmmaking sensibilities and that's all over the place with the graduate especially in mike nichols camera work and the expressive nature of it and how he moves it throughout and the different ways in which he frames things i talked uh, when we were watching the movie you know early on again i think early on it's just a really great that, that whole opening sequence in the 
the party and everything and up to Mrs. Robertson's house. It's just a really great display of uh, phenomenal filmmaking technique. The way he frames Ben uh, with the background in things, especially he creates him in isolated spaces very well, but also in cramped spaces when he's around the adults with the, the handheld camera shots and really tight on the faces of everyone. And it's just really brilliant, brilliant cinematography. I think the whole thing is expressed in probably the image we're using for our header, right? Right. Um, the one with her leg up and he's under it. It shows her control over him and that her sexuality already has him in a vice. He's ha- like there with his dopey smile. It's, and it's such an iconic famous line. It's such an iconic shot. And this thing is that if you strip the line of that, you would still have all the context you need. Just in that singular yeah. shot, we could sit here and dissect that shot. Like you said, it's this vice of sexuality that has already trapped Ben in this situation. He's he's totally unaware necessarily, and it's just the framing of that <laughs> through the like that's it's brilliant and that's something you can see in like a, a you put that up in a painting in that same kind of posture and people would critique that as, as art, which is oh, yeah. truly what that is. Well, of course, like I look at the shot now, now that we're bringing it up and there's all the plants in the background. We have all these ideas of fertility and growth and then, you know, there's a lot of sex in that image well, itself. And particularly uh, do the whole podcast just on this. Particularly. So. And, I, and I'll, I'll be brief on it because it's all there in the article I wrote, but the jungle imagery is especially relevant to Mrs. Robinson because they wanted to, in both mm. the set design and her costuming and everything about her character, they wanted to portray her as this, like, jungle animal, like some kind of predatory cat <laughs> who's who's hunting right. after Ben. So that's why she has all this leopard print and, like, giraffe print outfits uh, throughout the whole first part of the film when she's attempting to seduce Ben. That's why the whole, uh, their lounge room there, it looks like you're in a, you know, a damn African jungle in many aspects because yeah. it's just the whole patio sure. is covered in plants yeah it's a very exotic home and it's it's so interesting because at the start of the film of course it doesn't feel like he has his own agency he's still a young adult mm-hmm. and as it goes we we kind of reveal that i think by the time he jumps in the pool that's the start of it and then when once the car breaks down that's kind of the end of it where he has full free will and agency it, the the scene where he, he's kind of pushed in the pool i love that because that's that's really the moment with his parents on his 21st birthday where you see that conflict of generation come where they're forcing him into doing this this thing he doesn't want to in front of all of these people that he doesn't care about all his you know family friends and he's in this ridiculous outfit they've forced him into this way of life that he has no desire to be part of and the the scene has him jumping into the pool from his perspective like the camera is in the the wetsuit at that point and he's going underwater like he's drowning. It very much reflects yeah. how Ben's feeling in life. And when he tries to come up for air, when he tries desperately to, to come back for help, his parents physically force him back into the water. And they're pushing him towards this way of <laughs> yeah. life that he has, has no desire to. And he ends up just in this yeah. point of acceptance where he sits at the bottom of the pool, still still drowning in this anxiety of uncertainty. Well, there's that thing new generations are always different and the last generation always wants to push them into exactly the way they did something right right especially in the 60s that's there's just like this generational tug and pull and it feels like even with like the cat and predator thing there's there's a way things used to be done and uh that's conflicting with what ben really needs for himself and represented by uh what's what's the dar's name elaine elaine yeah yeah and Elaine ends up being a fat, fantastically drawn character who is very different, I think, most of the movie up to the end. It's it's weird, and there's a, there's some interesting conflict with uh, Ben and Elaine's relationship that you can 
potentially critique, I think, for the film. But overall, yeah. it's it's very, I think, a minor thing. And it's actually a, a, I, a factor of their relationship that Ben is so predatory towards her, that he's so aggressive in his courtship. And she's very rejecting of him at first. But she he eventually wins her over in a <laughs> uncertain kind of way. But that's also part of the, the youth yeah. commentary aspect of it, I think. The fact that their relationship is founded on essentially nothing more than a mutual... Uh, you know knowing of each other through their their family and that's what they know and they cling to that they cling to the only thing they're aware of and i think that the ending really solidifies how weak a foundation that is for sure i think i think everything i learned from horror movies is that you never want to criticize why a character chooses something that love and high strong emotion is so irrational and this guy's made so much sacrifice at this point to to be with her and to really show her that Finally, she just has the realization that it's the right thing, and then, uh, of course, they they what she thinks off. is the right thing certainly not yeah. not literally what it is. <laughs> what appears to be at the second, yeah. like compared to her option of a, you know, probably more sedentary, easy life with this guy she's marrying that that's been prefixed for her, another rejection of like this generation trap where mm-hmm. her parents have pushed her into something safer, but her mom also the hypocrisy of that generation. Her mom going and sleeping with Ben in the meantime and not doing the thing that she was chosen to do with her marriage makes Elaine think, oh, that's not right for me either because look what my mom did. Well, it's the same thing as well where we see that, where we see generations make the same mistakes as their parents did and whatnot. Mrs. Robinson wants to push Elaine into a relationship she feels is better because of her own mistakes, you know, getting pregnant at a young age with, you know, Murray Hamilton's character and essentially having to throw her life away uh, to do that and she doesn't want Elaine to end up in that same situation by running after the first guy that is willing to bed her effectively and Ben and but that all that does is that pushes her more into her his arms because she doesn't want to be you know as a youth she doesn't want to be restricted and told by her parents what to do and as you know as youth we all have <laughs> that desire to rebel and forge our own path even if it's not the most advised way to go I think my favorite symbol of that, of the um, leaving behind of the youth is just, it's such a simple one. I love the car, the whole movie, and when it breaks down and when he leaves it behind, I, I just love the easy symbolism of that. Yeah, and it's, there's all sorts of, it's, I can't think of another film that has quite as much, you know, really in your face, but also not calling attention to itself symbolism throughout you know we already talked about mm. like the jungle stuff but you're right like the car the car is a major facet and they establish it like in the opening lines of the film they talk about how he gets his car for his his graduation yeah. present that's what it is and that's what you know it's this it's this other semblance of uh you know growing up and it's this new thing this is his his new life i guess the car kind well, of represents ben in, in ways yeah yeah i mean it's such a baby boomer car too i mean the alfa romero yeah. with like the with like that rag top on top in in the diner is like such an old generational thing. They're you know, they're not dating the right way. They're not doing the things that they should have done. And if Ben came and were earnest with her, maybe they would have gotten to where they were at the end very soon. But we don't know. Well, it's all it's all very windswept romancy. All the stuff they yeah. they kind of get, and all their attraction is so surface level. And again, a lot of it. A lot of the reason why Elaine, you find, is attracted to Ben is because her mom does not want her to be. And that's really where yeah, right. it comes from. After that first, like, sorting out when Ben, you know, is trying to get her to not like him by taking her to a, the porn theater to watch and stuff. Like, like Travis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. 
Um, I think it. I think it even hardly matters why she decides to do it because it doesn't. All yeah. that matters is is some way that she got out of this fixed marriage. So, I mean, she opened herself a new opportunity. Whether or not it ends up being with Ben, I think she got out of what she didn't need to be in. Right. It's not about the literal reason why. It's the it's the subtext of it and whatnot. That this idea that you know we're inclined you know to make irrational decisions uh, on a whim you know because of. Uh, you know, our emotional feelings rather than any kind of logical stance. And that's yeah. that's what leads to much of our problems down the road as adults is kind of cleaning up the mistakes of our past and our, our reckless youth. And all art should be strictly irrational because life's irrational, right? And yeah. I feel like this plays well in the irrationality of youth. Um, and the most irrational thing is that they use Simon and Garfunkel over and over <laughs> for the soundtrack. I, I know you take... A little bit of issue with it, not like not like a lot, but uh, you know the Simon and Garfunkel. A great deal. The, gra- the the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack is one of, if not the most iconic aspects of it. The Sound of Silence song and Mrs. Robinson, wow. of course. Uh, you know, it's it really exists even outside of the film, and you know, it's it's almost impossible, I think, not to go through life hearing it elsewhere. But I know you, you're not the biggest fan of, of Simon and Garfunkel. You're more of a Hollow Notes guy. Is that what it is? <laughs> Does it have to be one or the other? Um, I think I'd be okay with either in the movies. Um, it's not quite like a Cat Stevens Harold and Mod moment for me. I mean, some of it's pretty good, but uh, uh, I, I'm fine with it in the context of the movie. But it goes back to it in such repetitive beats. Um, there are ones I like, like the strumming, slowing of the gu- guitar as the car kind of wimps out. But uh, there, it's just a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. It is, it is, and I guess if that's not your bag, then um, th- th- you're going to have a little bit of issue with the film, but it's not that much. I think it was interesting you brought up uh, Harold and Maude there, because that's probably, in terms of the romantic and age difference relationship, the most relatable film <laughs> in this sense. I, I, I see them brought up occasionally. That would make a good double feature, wouldn't it? What, what was the one you brought up earlier? That that was pretty... Oh, Midnight Cowboy, Harold and Maude, and I, I think my third edition... If you want to make like a quartet for the day, it would be like the swimmer, which is like the following year, I think. Oh yeah, just lots of blocks of that. You know, we we got a lot of that in that divide of uh, age there, the age gap. And I think that was something kind of remarkable we found out when we were talking is that the age gap between Dustin Hoffman and Bing Croft here is actually way smaller than it seems on screen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, wh- while we were watching it, I was looking at it and the way his head was turned, I could see all this gray coming in. I'm like, this guy can't be that young. No, he's he's supposed to seem like maybe in his early 20s, which Dustin Hoffman sells very well in his performance and the makeup. They do a really good job. He does? Of. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is our, our revealing of this information is not a knock to either of them, but he's actually 30 in the film and this was his big breakout. So that, that was kind of incredible. But I think the, the other real big surprise is... Uh, and Bancroft in the film, who they make look in her, you know, late 40s, early 50s. They give her lots of, you know, like the, the, the stretch marks and the, the tan, you know, the, the aged skin and such. Uh, and she's only six years older than Dustin Hoffman in the movie. <laughs> which is Only six years, which is pretty incredible. And not that big of it. We wouldn't even blink. No, that's, that that's nothing. This. If you just presented them as they, they were at the time, like, the story would just totally fall apart because you wouldn't believe that 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 that's any kind of taboo relationship necessarily uh at least the age aspect of it and the generational issue but they do such a great job and again in the performance and the makeup and design of their characters through costume and such to to convey a 20 30 year difference between their characters and that's a really remarkable (laughs) facet of the film that's easy to overlook 
I just think it's so great. She's so great here that um, she's very alluring as an older woman, too. Yeah. The way that she's presented here is really, like, the cinematic idea of what is sexy about older women. No, it, it totally makes the... It sells the argument there for you that there is value in the experience of an older woman as opposed to the, the nimble attraction of the, the younger girl. I would say, definitely, that, that Anne Bancroft is more attractive than Catherine Ross in the film. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we both had the same idea that she was, that Ben maybe was not a virgin by the time that he met Anne's character. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because I forgot that that actually comes up. Like Mrs. Robinson asks if he's you know ever had sex before, and he and then he goes like on the full defense, and she's so convinced now that he's he's never done anything. It's okay, it's your first time, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed about that. But oh, did it come up? It did. It did uh, come up for a second, oh, which I okay. forgot about. But I think our conclusion because they don't actually answer. Like Ben doesn't say. You know, all right, no, I haven't, yeah. or anything. It's it's still left questionable, but she is is pretty convinced that he hasn't. But I do like. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think he messed around with like a really nothing girl who is you know had her head full of like small ideas, and then this is a real woman, and it's it's basically the same. Right. I mean, for a guy, it doesn't matter so much. There's no real societal pressure other than you should have done it. Well, there's this interesting, again, disparity in experience that there's a big factor there. The fact that he doesn't mention anything, or like he's not nervous like it's his first time, he doesn't yeah. specify that, he doesn't put that information up front, makes it seem like maybe he has before, and like it was it was your first time experience where it was awkward, and you know, like it was it was pretty good, it wasn't like the amazing thing you thought it was, uh, and, and he still very has no idea what he's doing, and so this prospect of not only being with someone much older than you but someone you know your your parents know and everything and the whole taboo of that it really solidifies his awkwardness which leads to some of the best humor of the film i think that's an important thing to highlight as well is that buck henry's writing and dustin hoffman's performance together is just comic genius well there's that whole uncomfortable feeling with his mom too right because it's his mom's friend and when she comes into the steam room and she's like overwhelmed by his masculinity is like trying to wipe away the air in front of her and i don't know there's a weird sexualization between him and like the parental mom figure uh, well i think that plays into it's a little uncomfortable it, it plays into the commentary with the you know the the matriarchal figure of mr robinson as well i think they're trying to draw a parallel there between the two to reinforce the uh the taboo nature of that relationship by linking it back to his mom in case you forgot that like because they spend so much more intimate time together yeah um there there is some taboo in it i i just think it's also well drawn um what whether or not i like the soundtrack it's my only complaint about it i feel really good about the graduate no i, I think it's hard not to because it is just such a immaculately realized film and of its time but also timeless and uh, it never ceases to be fascinating i think there's always something new to kind of discover about it this time I was just so aware of the the camera, especially, and how you know deft Michael Nichol, Mike Nichols was with with it, and how he was able to convey the emotions of scenes uh, through the camera work and the framing. He's so good at conveying it through layers and having, you know, like rack shots or things are oh, zooming yes. in, and that, that. he has the best sense of placement of people. I think you mentioned the rack the rack focus because there is that one that great one where. Uh, you know, Ben's about to tell Elaine about who the person he slept with was, the affair, who it was, and there's the 
the rack focus that shows Mrs. Robinson having come out of the rain, just full of tears before she walks away and it <laughs> focuses back on Elaine as she connects the dots. And it's just this brilliant moment, you know, that you don't see as much. You know, I, I want to see the camera then, more in films. I love seeing that. And I love the camera right after, too, because as it pulls back and then we see Ben turning away into the camera it's just a really great series of shots Mm -hmm. like something in the middle of a movie with so much consideration for placement of people and camera i I really appreciate that there's so many great times throughout where you're 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 aware of the cinematography like it's coming out and grabbing your attention and really saying you know pay attention to this moment this is a significant thing like we talked earlier with the flashes of the the nudity but right before that moment when mrs robinson comes running into the room there's these three quick cuts and it's all of just to emphasize ben's head turning to to grab the attention he you know he he whips his head cut you know we get more angles of it and it's whip 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 like three times like that and it really stands out in a very quick montage moment there Uh, again the the editing of it is so in sync with the fantastic camera work throughout i just think it's so good at conveying that information that um whether or not I mean, you might have seen this 20 times, but it always feels like the first time. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And like I said, it, it evolves with you over time, or at least your perception of the film alters as you get older and you pick up on, on more characters and sympathize with different parties and everything kind of comes together. Again, I love how uh, appreciating the film is of everybody there. It's sympathetic to every character. There's no bad guys necessarily, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's really well considered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I suppose before we sign off here, I think it's important to highlight the the magnificent closing shot of the film, which really wraps everything in a nice bow and explains the film perfectly. It's like a perfect, you know, summary of the the entirety there. Just the acting with their faces and eyes is really like a masterclass in doing that. <laughs> it feels really good, and I, I, there's just so much feeling in it. it. It tells you a lot of things with their eyes. Right, because there's that, there's that moment, there's like this emotional high right beforehand when Ben and Elaine yeah. run away. Like, and it's this, it's this almost fantasy kind of like sequence where everything else is very grounded. Where you know the knight in shining armor is Ben. You know he, whisk, you know runs to the church just in time to save her as the ceremony about to start. It's almost soap opera like in that aspect. And they run away together. They get on the bus, but it's all a very important and you know substantially different feeling you know from the rest of the film so that you can bring this crashing down to earth feeling as they sit on the bus and they have this wash of of clarity and realize that uh that the total lack of foundation that this relationship and this uh almost idiotic move to run away and abandon their previous lives is and they settle in and realize kind of how uh dysfunctional this relationship is going to be yeah i think it sets up the scene perfectly for how things are going to go i mean in ending you don't really want it to put a nice bow on it yeah you want something left behind something to think about after you leave and right i think that's just enough sort of in the same sense as midnight cowboy where you're on the bus and you're thinking about death and you're it's, it's looking at where, where he's going to florida right it's it, the same deal isn't that kind of interesting that the two dustin hoffman pictures in a row both end with him on a bus it, with a melancholy ending I think probably no coincidences there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's the, the nature is that both both films, they have this uh, unambiguous but not entirely clarifying ending 
which is really uh, important to allow you to come away with some you know interesting thoughts and introspections about the film, but without any questions. There's no uncertainty to what the film wants you to feel at the end. It's very clear that in those final moments that it is not a happy ending for Elaine and Ben. It is a complex and uncertain road ahead, and it, it probably won't end well for them. But you can't say exactly how, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you, David. I'm I'm super glad we got to this eventually. I know there's others that we thought of doing with Buck Henry that uh, it's still on the list, I think. Yeah, well, this one I think was just an important one to get around to, and again, the most representative and memorable of his great work. Uh, it's it's hard to top the graduate in general, and you know he he will be dearly missed as a figure in our American culture, and, you know, we were, we were so blessed to have such a, a masterpiece, I think, from him. I'm just grateful to revisit it one more time as an adult and kind of see what's there for me now. Because oh. um, I, I really grew up with this film. There's still a lot left there. Right. I hope uh, further rewatches will be even more rewarding for you as well, and I look forward to the next time I get to, to see it. And, of course, I implore anybody who has not yet seen it please seek it out it is a, a cornerstone of american cinema all right uh, yeah it's a great watch please get to it thanks so much david thank you i'll see you next week